It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, discuss the increasing use of facial recognition by Russian security forces, and I interview a Ukrainian architect about his life between the front lines and the studio, and a new project to help Ukrainians rebuild their homes. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 5th of April. One year and 40 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, investigative and data reporter, Lina Masry from Reuters, and Ukrainian architect, Slava Balbek of Balbek Bureau. I started by asking Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David. There's been considerable excitement this morning amid rumours, and they are just rumours, that Ukraine is laying the groundwork for their counteroffensive. Explosions have been heard in Russian-occupied Melitopol. Now, there have been reports over the past couple of weeks or so of more explosions than usual around that town. On Monday, a car bomb reportedly injured a pro-Russia local politician. And it seems that something interesting is happening there. Ivan Fedorov, the ousted Ukrainian mayor of the city, wrote on Telegram, an explosion was heard in the northern and western districts of the city. We are clarifying the information. As I say, Russian forces are also reportedly building up their forces in preparation for an attack and are apparently trying to get local people to leave. The city, I should say, it has a pre-war population of 150,000 and was, of course, captured by Moscow in the first days of the invasion last year. If Ukraine is thinking of laying the groundwork for an attack on it, it, it would make sense strategically for reasons we've talked about in the past. All of this could, however, be a diversionary tactic. But if so, that in itself is interesting because it would show that a counteroffensive is on the cards and it's not inconceivable for something substantial to happen soon. Otherwise, we wouldn't see these speculations and troop movements. 
the question of the counterattack is also being actively discussed in American and European political circles. So all of the evidence would suggest, whilst we've got nothing definitive, all of the evidence is pointing to something happening soon and possibly in that area. Further evidence of such activity may also be found in the fact that Putin has fired one of his top generals in the past 24 hours. That's after the attacks on Vuladar in the east, somewhere, of course, we've spoken about a lot, ended with dozens of tanks being destroyed and really a humiliation for Russia in many respects. The individual who has been sacked is General Rustam Miladov, and he was sacked in the aftermath of this failure. That's according to the Moscow Times, citing officials in the Russian Defence Ministry. They cite Kael Kaufman, who's a military analyst, who said that the uh, the general had the Russian military, military repeatedly attacking in small mechanised formations through minefields and across open terrain, and they accomplished nothing in Volodar. And apparently Russian forces may have lost as many as 130 armoured vehicles, so not an insubstantial amount. And so the sacking of this individual, it's, it's always damaging reputationally when you're at war and you have to sack a general. So it's not something you do lightly, but it would suggest and say it's an indicative of perhaps the fact that this cannot wait, that a counteroffensive may be coming soon. And so generals who've shown themselves to not be up to the task need to be removed sooner rather than later. So again, another interesting development which we'll be monitoring closely. Just remaining on Russia, there's also been another interesting development in the killing of the Kremlin propagandist Tatarsky, something, of course, I've been talking about a lot in recent days. Now, James Kilner, a regular on this podcast, has spent the morning reading the Moscow Press' analysis of this poor bloke, where there's been a real a slight shift away from the original narrative regarding Daya Topova, who was, of course, arrested for the crime. Now, according to the uh, St. Petersburg news site, Ford Fontanka, she's believed to have unwittingly murdered Mr. Tatarsky during a fake audition for a job in journalism. They cite leaked FSDB reports from her interrogation where she says she didn't know that the fake statue was a bomb. Now, I've spoken to James and he's confirmed that the fact that this is being reported in Russia means that the FSB wants this information out. It's effectively state mandated. Now, it doesn't mean that they're making her come across as a victim. They are still pushing this as a evil Ukrainian plot aided by unpatriotic and terrible Navalny groupies. But it is interesting, I think, to register this slight shift. Perhaps they don't feel people will believe she intended to murder him. She doesn't appear alarmed or to give the impression that she just handed over a bomb to a murder target in the footage that we have. Or perhaps they think it's more effective for the public to believe that Ukrainians have manipulated an innocent girl into uh, carrying out this attack. Either way, I don't believe that the fact we're hearing this is benign. The Russian media are happy for this to go out and it's doing so for a specific purpose. Though I should stress that this, we still have no idea whether this was carried out by the Ukrainians or whether this was an inside job within Russia to send a message to Rogozin and bloggers who have, of course, been attacking the military's handling of the war. I was pondering myself this morning whether they might be laying the groundwork for negotiations this year, wanting to eliminate the sort of standard bearers for unhindered, unhampered violence against the Ukrainian people. But I think that's unlikely as there's been no softening of rhetoric from the Kremlin, quite the reverse. But nonetheless, it's interesting to hypothesise what might be going on. So that's the lay of the land in sort of the military and Russian domestic sphere, David. 
Thank you very much, Francis. There's quite a few diplomatic updates as well. Uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine is headed to Poland and Macron of France has gone over to Beijing. Francis, can you, before we go to Lena, Francis, can you talk us through these stories? Why are they significant and what's happening? Sure. Well, the interesting, I think the most interesting one is Zelensky's visit to Poland. We've, of course, reflected a lot on Poland recently, given their increased significance in symbolically supporting Ukraine in Europe, but also in terms of the way in which they have mobilised as a response in, in a manner that many feel is it should have been the response from other powers in Europe. And so it, it makes sense that, uh, that Zelensky chooses Poland to go to next. Now, it, obviously, it's important to stress that Zelensky travels fairly infrequently. Remember, of course, his visit to Washington, D.C. Poland was actually where he visited next. That was on the 22nd of December last year. And clearly sending a, a clear message to Poland how much they'd appreciated the support of Ukraine since the invasion, of course, taking in millions of refugees further to the military support. And this year, we've had Zelensky visit the UK, of course, France, Belgium and Brussels and Poland again. So it is a small group. And it is interesting that he's chosen Poland to go to again at this moment. It's obviously only just really started, so we've not got much more out of it, apart from the President Duda, President of Poland, has awarded him with the Order of the White Eagle during a ceremony at the Presidential Palace. Now, this is the oldest and highest Polish award presented to outstanding individuals. And so this obviously coincides with similar rewards being given to Zelensky in recent weeks. But nonetheless, I think is important. And again, is symbolically showing that support is only increasing for Zelensky and for Ukraine rather than the reverse. You mentioned Macron in Beijing. I obviously touched on this yesterday. He's also taking Ursula von der Leyen with him, president of the EU Commission, of course. And that's interesting. I think this is an attempt to make it appear as something more broad than just being Macron going, but to have a bit more of European backing behind him for what he's trying to say to China. And we know what he's saying, which is trying to find another path from the sort of direct confrontational tone often being heard coming Beijing with regard to the way in which perhaps the West has conducted itself over Ukraine. They're always trying to sort of play the peacemaker, as it were. But of course, as we've spoken about at length, China's role in this is is hugely important. In many ways, they've been supporting Russia, not only financially, but there has been evidence of them also funneling some weaponry to, to Russia at this critical moment. And so this is an attempt to get China to step down. And I understand that Macron has discussed this trip to China with President Biden last night. Again, interesting. And I think that will probably be to allay maybe some concern the White House House, or at the very least to express the intentions or, or maybe even Biden's trying to give him some warning about um, how to approach the Chinese. We don't know. But nonetheless, it is interesting. They are, as I say, claiming that they want to accelerate the search for a solution to the war. That's the objective in going. But as I say, I don't really see any tangible evidence of China wanting to do that. They benefit a lot from this war for various reasons, but also they haven't yet had that phone call with President Zelensky, which was promised. And I know I keep banging the drum on this, but that was the excuse that was given for them justifying going to Moscow internationally. And the fact that it hasn't happened, I think is very revealing. Now, as I say, this visit is not without criticism of Macron. A lot of people are sort of citing Roosevelt's old maxim, speak softly and carry a big stick. Where's the stick? <laughs> you know, we, 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 we can now say with confidence that China won't change its path, I think, unless it is advantageous for them to do so. Yet many people are saying that, that the EU, France aren't really threatening China with anything by going there. 
it's sort of a repeat of when Macron was going to Putin when he expressed outrage, but had no real leverage in how he was dealing with him. So, but we'll see what comes out of this. There will, I'm sure there'll be some interesting developments, but one feels that at this stage, unless the West is willing to to do more to make it clear to China the dangers of for them if they were to pursue a path supporting Russia, that really there's going to be very little coming from these kind of summits. But just last of all, um, of course, I spoke at length yesterday about Finland joining NATO, hugely important moment. And I'll make some more reflections at the end just on how important this is. But it's been an interesting reaction from European leaders. Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of Britain, of course, has hailed Finland's historic ascension to NATO. He's urged the military grouping to admit Sweden next, which is, of course, being blocked by Hungary and Turkey at the moment, but particularly Turkey. Their role is considered particularly important. British Foreign Secretary attended the NATO meeting in Brussels yesterday, and he's announced a further £12 million. That's about six million in non-lethal military aid to Ukraine. And there have been numerous other countries as well that have used the used Finland joining NATO as a, another uh, platform in which to support Ukraine and to talk about what is at stake here. So quite interesting developments in the diplomatic space, but I imagine that we'll have more tomorrow on hearing exactly what's happened both in Poland and in China. Thank you very much for all of that, Francis. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome Lena Masri to this podcast. Lena, thank you so much for joining us. I'm just looking at the title of your wonderful investigative piece for Reuters. Facial recognition is helping Putin curb dissent with the aid of US tech. So you looked, you reviewed more than 2000 court cases in Russia. Before we get into the detail of what you found, why did you choose to look at this in particular? Yeah, so um, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there were some big opposition protests in Russia. And this was in 2021. And I had heard from some sources who monitor protests in Russia that during one of these large protests, very few people were actually arrested sort of during the protest. And that was very unusual for an anti-government protest of that size in Moscow. Um, But then some of the people who had participated in the protest and weren't arrested, were then tracked down by police days or weeks later and arrested then for participating in that protest. And this led some protesters and lawyers to suspect that facial recognition and surveillance was used to figure out that they had taken part in the protest and and to detain them. And I thought this seemed like an interesting and important shift in how law enforcement in Russia cracked down on opposition activists and protesters if it was true. So I was interesting, in tr- interested in trying to see if, if it was true and also if I could document the scale of, of it. So how many cases have, act- have there actually been of people being detained by facial recognition and surveillance? Um, so yeah, so, th- so I thought that by reading through court cases that had been open against protesters, I could see if these documents mention anything about surveillance or facial recognition, and then I could count how many cases said that that's what was used as evidence against the protesters. Thanks, Lena. Well, let's get into it then. You did look into this. What did you find? What are the top lines? Or just talk us through your most important findings from what you found. Yeah. So I found that surveillance had been used to detain hundreds of protesters in Moscow. So I found close to 300 cases that explicitly said that surveillance had been used as evidence against the protesters. And most of these cases directly said that footage from city surveillance cameras was used as evidence. Um, But there was also a smaller number of cases where it was 
videos or photos of the protests that police found on social media that were used as evidence. And um, and I mean, most many of the cases I read didn't have enough detail for me to know if surveillance official recognition was used. So it's possible that the actual number of cases is higher than the around 300 that I found. And also from, from reading these cases, I was able to learn a bit about how facial recognition is being used against protesters because some of them had details about that. And in these cases that relied on surveillance, it was often the case that the protester wasn't detained during the actual demonstration, but was tracked down by police and arrested days or weeks later. Uh, and that's because law enforcement officials after the protest reviewed surveillance footage and then used surveillance footage of the demonstration and then used a facial recognition algorithm to compare the face of the protester in that footage to a database of photos like passport photos. And just sort of taking the story, sort of zooming out slightly, do you get a sense of how this new technology has impacted how people do protest uh, in Russia? Or, you know, has it led to fewer people protesting if they know that they're being profiled in this way? What did you see there? Yeah, so one change that happened last year after the invasion of Ukraine was that authorities began using facial recognition to prevent people from protesting in the first place. So while what I just explained about the court documents showed people being arrested and charged after they already protested, they now started detaining people before they could protest. Last year, a lot of people were detained after entering Moscow metro stations where there are surveillance cameras, and then they were held for some hours often and then released without being charged with any offense because they hadn't done anything. They were just going about their daily lives when they were detained, but they were often warned against protesting during their detentions, and many of them had had to sign a document acknowledging that they had been warned against it or promising not to protest. And um, and yeah, I, I interviewed 29 people who were detained in this way. And most of them had already in the past been detained and charged for protesting. And a human rights group that monitors repression in Russia, OVD Info, documented 141 people who were detained in this way last year. And like I said, these cases, in these cases, people aren't charged, so they wouldn't show up in the court documents. So that would be in addition to the court cases I, I mentioned earlier. Yes, um, that there have been fewer protests in Russia there. Yeah. Well, Lena, you mentioned your interviews with the people affected by this. Could you talk to us about some of these individuals? Who are they? What's their story? So they're, they're different people who do different things, but, but yeah, many of them have protested in the past. One of them was Andrei Chernyshev, who he entered a Moscow metro station in May last year. He was planning on participating in an anti-war protest. But right after he entered the station, police officers stopped him. They told him he was on a wanted list, and then they took him to a police office inside the station. Um, and they had like a tablet or phone with photos of him and told him that the Metro's facial recognition system had flagged him for detention because of his political activism. And he was released after a few hours without being charged with anything. But then later that same day, actually, he took the Metro again to go home and then he was detained again um, and was questioned about his views on the war in Ukraine and on President Vladimir Putin and a man in 
in plain clothes said he was an official from Russia's Center for Combating Extremism, which is also known as Center E. Uh, and he advised him not to express his political views because he had a young child to care for. He has a five-year-old son, um, and he took this as a threat. And he ended up spending seven hours with police that day, and he was detained again in similar way three more times in, so in June and in August and September. He also was visited at home by police twice where they warned that warned him against protesting. Another person also is Lubek Rutenko, a 32-year-old architect. And she had also been, she also had protested in the past, had been arrested in the past for protesting. But then last year was stopped in the metro by police for no particular reason, seemingly. And, um, and then after that detention... Or she said that police also showed up at her home like seven or eight times last year. Um, and they would warn her against protesting and also give her documents to sign where she was acknowledging that she had been warned. And she tried to avoid them and stop answering the door. But then they start to call her instead. And actually, during one phone call, a police officer told her that they knew that she was home, but just was avoiding them and not answering the door because... Um, a lot of buildings in Moscow have surveillance cameras outside, so they said that they were checking the footage outside of her home and that they could see that she had gone inside and hadn't come out but wasn't answering the door, so that's how they knew she was home. And after that, she went on vacation in Russia, and she took the train back to Moscow and got out of the train. Police were waiting for her right outside of the, the carriage that she had been in, and they asked her again to sign a warning against protesting or acknowledging that she had been warned against protesting. And both Luba Krutenko and Andrei Chernyshev, these two people, I, they both left Russia. And actually, a lot of the people I interviewed left Russia, not just because of the surveillance. There were other factors, too. But knowing that they were under such close observation definitely contributed to their decisions to leave Russia. Lena, can I ask, how do you see this fitting into Russia's broader campaign to suppress dissent from its citizens? Um, yeah, so so before the invasion of Ukraine, it was already illegal in, under Russian law to participate in protests if they weren't approved by authorities. But after the invasion of Ukraine, there were some important sort of additions to the criminal code that made it illegal to publicly and deliberately spread what authorities call false information about the use of Russia's armed forces. So that's now a crime and it's punishable by fines or prison sentences. It can the prison sentence can be up to 15 years. It depends on the circumstances. So that's a much harsher punishment than what it was before and for just for, for just participating in a protest. Um, and also, it's also illegal now to take part in public actions aimed at discrediting the use of the armed forces. So that's now also punishable by fines or prison terms. So these are some of the steps that activists and lawyers say authorities are, are using to suppress dissent and yeah by making the potential punishment much higher than it used to be um so so that's like coupled with the facial recognition detentions and other things one thing we haven't spoken about that would be good to hear a little bit on is the tech used to actually do this would you like to talk a little bit about that and then i think francis might have one or two comments and questions yeah so 
basically in Mo- Moscow use technology from the spatial recognition algorithms from four different companies, the Larushian one called Synesis and three Russian ones, uh, Tivian, Vision Labs, and Tech Lab. And actually, Synesis's algorithm has been used previously in Belarus, also against protesters. And for that reason, Synesis is sanctioned by the UK and the US and the EU. And um, and the, some of the companies, uh, Vision Labs and Tech Lab, have had relationships with U.S. tech companies. So they've used chips G- called GPUs from U.S. company NVIDIA. Um, and um, Asinesis has also previously used chips from Intel, another U.S. company. And so so that's the actual, what I know about, or that's a summary of what I know about the actual sort of technology that's being used. There was also a, a, a news release from uh, Moscow's government uh, that said that in the metro specifically, they use a Vision Labs algorithm for a video analytics system called Spera. And actually, a lot of the people I interviewed who were detained in the metro were told by police that Spera was what was used to detain them in the metro. And ge- more generally, it's um, there are sort of two different ways that it's being used. So there's the more real-time identification in the metro where people are stopped seconds or minutes after they walk past walk through the payment gate where there's a camera and then they're yeah stopped by police and because the algorithm detained them that sorry recognize them very quickly um and uh then there are the other types of detentions i described where people are where police review footage from um and then track down and detain people maybe weeks later. So so it's both the real-time facial recognition and the the slower kind where it's it can take days or weeks to identify and, and detain people. Well, Lena, thank you for taking us inside your investigation into the technology and methods used to suppress dissent in, in Russia. It's been really fascinating. Francis, can I ask you for your reaction to what Lena's been saying and if you have any questions yourself? Well, it's a really interesting report, but also a concerning one, particularly in these revelations around Western companies that have been selling this software and technology to Russia. Now, of course, surveillance has been quite common in Western countries and has extrapolated hugely in recent years. And there have been, of course, all sorts of exposés of that going on. The intention might be different with, say, Russia and China, and I'll come to China in a moment. But the fact is that in the West, you know, we see ourselves as separate from this, but we may unintentionally be stumbling into a similar world. It's not, it lacks a sort of proactive nature of, of what, say, Putin or Xi are trying to do. But nonetheless, we're not far off this ourselves, and it should be a huge concern, I think. On China specifically, I mean, they are the real sort of masters of this technology. They use, I remember the New York Times did an investigation into it around June last year, where they were talking about the the, the sort of fingerprint technology, the huge databases, the high-tech cameras that can detect you from miles away. I mean, I think we still tend to think about uh, crushing dissent in a sort of quite an analog and old-fashioned way. People turn up to a protest and uh, the police come and arrest you and take you away. But the real insidious nature of this is that they know you're on your way to a protest and they're you before you even get there and of course that has a spiraling effect on on the culture of protests and the awareness that people have who are who may feel differently in an oppressive system so it's extremely concerning but my first question to you lena is is about the 
what perhaps more can be being done to counteract this and whether you get a sense of the sort of sanctions or, or what is taking place maybe to stop some of the software that is leaving the West from going into to Moscow and other places in the first place. Yeah, so the court documents I downloaded from a court website, so Moscow's court website, which, so good thing about that website from sort of an investigative perspective is that that it's all Moscow's courts that they pub- they're they supposed to at least publish all cases from all ca- all courts in Moscow, whereas other regions in Russia, I would have needed to go to a lot of different websites to get documents, which would have made it harder to get a complete picture. So from Moscow, I felt confident that I could get a pretty complete picture of, of cases. Um, it was a little difficult to, at times, access the website because... Um, a lot of Russian websites are not really accessible outside of Russia, and I'm not based in Russia. So, but I found a, or we found a workaround around that, and um, and then um, the process was to search for specific keywords that would likely appear in documents where surveillance was used as evidence. So, a lot of different keywords like cameras, surveillance, visual recognition, and then that resulted in a very large number of document that I then read and then then manually in an in a an Excel sheet kind of manually took note of different things about the case including whether surveillance was used as evidence and that allowed me to sort of count how many cases mentioned that surveillance was used again it's, it, it would only be cases that actually mentioned the use of surveillance so there could be more cases that aren't included in this just because the case doesn't say that surveillance was used um and um, uh, how long it took? Uh, it took many months to do, especially the the court document work. It, it took a long time, and I I know I got the idea for the story around exactly a year ago, actually around April last year. Uh, and then it took some time to figure out, you know, how to document things and what court database to use. Or yeah, so so that was that was part of the process, at least. Thank you, and I know it may not be sort of your place as the investigative journalist to to answer this question, but what would you like to see happen as a result? I mean, I know it's obviously impossible to to trigger any change in, in Russia, but would you like to see there any changes made to perhaps how Western companies, Western technology is is dealt with in terms of how it's being filtered through to Russia? Yeah, it's clear that uh, from the reporting we've done also that the technologies are still reaching Russia. So it's kind of interesting how how that will be, how difficult it can be to control that, that um, sanctions don't necessarily mean that technologies won't still arrive in Russia. And I, in a way, I think that's also maybe shows just, I mean, for so long there has been, Russia has been part of the international economy and, and you know, there's been trade going on for a long time so and i and in reality they had in russia they had access to technologies before before the war started so it will be interesting to see i guess whether any more sanctions will be imposed as a result of this because i mean like i think i mentioned earlier that one of the companies that supplies um facial recognition software to russia 
is already sanctioned. So it will be interesting to see if other companies will be sanctioned as well or, or what will happen. Well, Lena, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us. Francis, thank you for your questions. Francis, any final thoughts from you before we finish today? Well, just reflecting on this issue and, of course, the big issue, the big story of NATO expansion as a consequence of Finland joining, it just struck me, I was thinking about before we came on air, that so profound and lasting change is often more reactive than, than pre- proactive. And what I mean is that sort of tyrants and dictators, they fetishize the proactive. They have this clear vision that they wish to impose. But in recent centuries, that approach has more often failed than succeeded, in, at least in the Western context. It's certainly true if one's looking at, say, a Napoleon, for instance. Yes, he left the Napoleonic Code in certain places. But the real change was the political and cultural transformations that took place as Europe responded to the threat that he and France posed at that time. And as I say, one could argue that we're seeing the same here with NATO's expansion. It's arguably the most significant development of this war so far in some ways. And yet also, interestingly, we don't really see it as such, such as the scale of the change that we've seen since the invasion last year in terms of how we approach the subject. It hasn't surprised us. It's it's almost a sort of secondary story that that NATO that that Finland has joined NATO, and we only really notice things, only notice change when they take us by surprise. And there's nothing surprising about this, which, as I say, it just speaks to the extent of the transformation and the degree of Putin's failure when you look at what his intention for this war was and what's actually happened. So uh, it is an extraordinary week, David. And in many ways, what is most extraordinary about it is how unextraordinary it feels. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis Sternley. Lena, thank you for joining us. Any final thoughts from you? What will you be looking at uh, in the future to do around this? Well, I'll definitely be following a question around sanctions. And another thing is also just seeing if there will be more of these types of preventive facial recognition detentions. Because the thing about them is that it can be so unpredictable when or if it will happen. Um, Because for some of the you know, protesters that I've talked to, it means that they, you know, they don't need to just worry about if they've participated in our protest, they don't need to only worry about whether they will have to pay a fine or serve a jail sentence for that protest. It's also that they'll worry about whether they, after paying that fine and serving that jail sentence, will be stopped, you know, on on days when they're not expecting it at all by police in the metro or elsewhere and i know from people i've talked to that they feel that now there just is a risk that they'll be detained again or visited by police at home and so in a way they feel that there's a risk of being punished over and over again um and that is just very unpredictable which they think you know they feel that that makes it very scary and i know you know a lot of the detention last year happened on national holidays so I'll definitely be paying attention to that. Like in May this year, there's Russia's Victory Day and some people are concerned about whether there'll be more detentions then. So that's also something I'll be following in addition to the technologies and the sanctions. Thank you, Francis and Lena. Earlier today, I spoke to Slava Balbek, a Ukrainian architect based in Kyiv. We spoke about his studio and their projects to help displaced Ukrainians rebuild their homes And he told me a little bit about his life on the front lines and how he balances it with being an architect back in the capital city. 
I started, as always, by asking him just to tell us a little bit about himself. Here's our conversation. Well, Slava, thank you so much for your time today. Would you start just by telling us a bit about yourself and your life in the last year? I'm Slava Belbek. I'm an architect from Kyiv. Actually, I'm operating the architectural studio for 15 years. And last year was a tricky one. (laughs) Because actually we challenge ourselves to go through all of this full-scale invasion. And I'm actually never left Kiev, uh, except like to going some on uh, for, I don't know, researchers or etc. But basically, or the very beginning, it was quite a shock. Yeah, because first month was terrible. And actually, then we just a little bit used. I can say that people are really fastly used to bad conditions. So I work, we actually organize some kind of volunteer hub and we trying to deliver the hot meals for the first months. And only after that, we just came up that actually we are are an architect so we can be a little bit more helpful in our field of expertise because first months was terrible. And then actually it was, uh, you just just take care of your friends and uh, close society. You're trying to take care of your family and... uh, it's actually, it was a shock, but a little bit later, as I can say, so our group, our team, team of volunteers and team of architects who were staying with me here in Kyiv and the other guys who, who left Ukraine. So actually our group is, it's about like 65 people and almost, I don't know, maybe 40 of them were just forced to leave the, the country or, or the Kyiv or be a little bit more safer space, a safer place in Ukraine. But we all of all of them were all like on a contact, and we continue working as the as the volunteers and as the volunteer architects. You mentioned how awful it's been in the first few months and over the past year. We've seen an, a huge amount of destruction of Ukrainian buildings, be they civic buildings, homes, blocks of flats, museums, etc. As as an architect and a building designer, what's your response to that? What what have you seen? You know, I actually. It's hard to say as an architect, but I'm now on. I'm not really care about the the architecture. We actually care about the people and their safety. So this is the basic thing. This is zero level of uh, of fundament of uh, our priority. Afterwards, so we have our priority of global challenges, as we call this. So first of all, we want to take care of about the people and their safety. Then the people, when they're a little bit more comfortable in that situation, they continue act. So we are working on the instrument that helps allow them to act as a society. Afterwards, we, we set ourselves the challenge to work with the environment of the society. So uh, as you can see, there is no architecture there. So just it, it's about to, to, to make a backup plan to, to set up the basics uh, to continue living and surviving. And this is the important thing. So we took for ourselves the field of temporary solutions. So. As you know, you have emergency ones, temporary and permanent. So emergency, it's about you need to react as fast as you can. It's like something like about to set the fire down or just set a container to leave for a week or a month. But the temporary solutions allows you to be a little bit more stable, to recover your mental health, to be sure that the next month or next half year, you will be somewhere in a safe place so you can, can continue to act. So for us, the architecture... It's a little bit like a treatment instrument because it's around you, it's surrounding. So while you work with the environment, so you are working with the mental health of people and uh, they can act. So as you know, the 
65% of uh, like military needs were covered by volunteers like us, I mean, the society. It's a huge amount according to the global scope of, of needs that's coming from the guys. Could you talk to us then about your work in the in the past year? Maybe a, l- a little bit about your, your new project, uh, Ukraine Villages. What is it? What are you trying to do? Uh, please feel free to go into as much detail as you'd like. It's really interesting. Yeah. First of all, we came up with the housing project. We call this housing. This is the the main idea of the project. It's dignity no matter what. So it's a dignified living system for the displaced people. So... It's about the system which allows you to be in a comfortable way. And we just understood that people, they're forced to, to leave their homes. They're losing not only the square footage, they're lo- lo- losing the connection in between their friends and family. And they don't want to be replaced. So our solution was to p- p- propose a living system of the modular houses which can build beside the destructed cities. So where people can wait and wait in comfortable conditions while the government like repairing or fixing their living blocks or etc. So actually, we came up with this idea and we start working on this on the, I think, third week of war. So our third week of full-scale invasion, there was only volunteers. There was 25 people of our, our uh, architectural bureau, which were working on this project. We even uh, pr- uh, present this project for the Volodymyr Zelensky on April. Now when we are starting building the pilot project to show the real scale model, just to show what it's about to have a temporary living in a comfortable solutions. So this was about uh, people and their safety. But uh, about the villages, this is our next project, which we are focused on. This is about giving people a task to act on the right way. So it's it's resource uh, research which gives us the amounts of distracted houses Private ones, small ones in the small world, it's about 1,030 hundreds, so thousands. I mean, it's it's a huge amount of destructive small private houses. So it's not about the critical infrastructure. It's not about huge living blocks in the city. It's about small Ukrainian villages, authentic ones, small ones. So, and we just can understand that this is the latest priority for the government to recover. So that's why and people start rebuilding this. You know, we were working as the volunteers. So we were, we made a the, like volunteer mission. We deliver food and hot meals to the villagers. And actually we interviewed the, the guys who were living there. And they said, first months, of course, they were needed for the water supply or the food delivering. But afterwards, they said, okay, it's enough with the food. Let's give us just instruments. Give us the building supplies, we want to recover our home. We don't want to be relocated somewhere in a safe place. At the next day after we did deoccupate the villages, they're starting painting the fans, they're starting rebuilding the roofs. It's amazing. So people get back to normal life. They're trying to, to act as a normal very soon. So that's how we came up with the villages project. It's, it's an online instrument. It's an online tool uh, which help you to go through several steps and to create a unique project to recover your home. So we discover we could go across, I think, up to 25 different villages which, which were disrupted or, or damaged. Only in Kyiv region, about 25, we analyze it according to different categories. For example, roof type, color palette, window framing, terraces, verandas, and etc. And then we create an aligned tool that can 
how can I say, it's a parametric pedal. So people, it's free of charge. You can go on the website, you can go like 12 different steps and you can create the online 3D volleyball house, which is based on the design code of architecture, of of uh, authentic architecture of Ukrainian Kyiv region. So if you choose the window or if you choose the color palette or if you choose the plan or, or layout for their master plan, it, it is based on the design code. So we were trying and afterwards when you go through all of the steps and you go with expert, so you've got the PDF with the like super simple solutions with the plans and cuts and facades and uh, just recommendation how you can rebuild it. So it's about to make this rebuilding as much more easy way. So, and this online builder can allow, allows you to create over 200 million different solution, unique houses, only of 12 steps. Yeah, so, and it's amazing because you can download it for free or you can print it out uh, somewhere in the city hall of the villager and then you can use it. It's, it's a tip which can be really useful to rebuild it. So you don't need to think if you have like a destructed, fully destructed house, so you can just follow these rules and that's it. So, so just so I understand it correctly, you've built an online tool that will allow locals from the Kiev region who've seen their homes destroyed to go online, kind of go through your toolkit to create, to recreate if they like their house. And, and you've got all the materials that you know, the, the right architecture, the things that they'd be useful used to from their villages. So as you said, the facades, the type of windows, the colors, all that kind of stuff. Is, is, that, is, that, what, is that what you've created? Yeah. Yeah, it's t- totally correct. So if you will use this tool, even if you can create one or 200 millions unique architecture, it will still based on the solution which is used, uh, which is based on this key region. Our next step is going for other regions, like uh, we will go region by region. Chernihiv, Sumy, Poltava, Kharkiv, this is our next step. So we just released it two weeks ago, I guess, maybe three weeks ago. So now on, it's almost over 3,000 houses were generated. And we see the statistics, You, if you go on a tool, so you see people that generated over 3,000 houses, and it's all of them are unique. So, but this is, this is fantastic. We are happy that we released it, that it was nine months of work. So actually we started on June or July. We were making a footage, collecting, making, uh, like sorting all of these categories. Then we made a 3D model, 3D model of this. Then we tried, tried to make the parametric model. So you can imagine every time you're changing the dimension, all the elements generates itself. So all the profiles, all the window framing, the quantity of the elements. So, and then you just make a export and then you have all the specs just to build it up for you. So it's it's not a working documentation. It's not like, but it's it's like a online tool which helps you to build a bit more comfortable way of using this. That's it. So could, could we just get into, so who's who's actually sort of funding this? Is this volunteer-led? And who, who's buying the materials? How are the materials coming in? How does it actually get, how does it go from the online tool to, to a house that somebody can live in again? You know, there's several options. For example, there is kind of volunteer hubs and volunteer initiative, which is rebuilding house by house. Actually, I know our friends who was an owner of cafe shops and they took a street in Chernigiv region with the houses, like 20 houses, and they're actually trying to, fundraise some small amount of money, fix the house, then go to the next house, fix it, go to the next house, and they just cover all the street. Uh, this is not uh, some, it's a non-state actors, so they act by themselves. They 
like have the community of like young hipsters who is donating with a small amount of money, but actually they're going street by street and uh, all the community, all local, local community of the street, it's a, some super small no-name village in Chernigiv region. And then people are helping them to make it as fast as you can because they know that next house will be there. And it was amazing, amazing project for half, half of the year, six months, they were making renovation of this. And such initiatives are like covered with the whole of Ukraine. Of course, there is a support from the government somehow. So there is support of the official organization who like or fundraising and giving about like $5,000 per, per person or per house, or maybe some building suppliers uh, just give materials for this and concrete or sheet rocks or something like this. So people can, can do it by themselves. But normally, people trying to to do as as much as they can so nobody is trying to wait so you need to understand people in ukraine if you have if you have house destroyed so you will find something on the street and you fix it as fast as you can so that's why we create this online tool and it gives you we can say a maximum level of the project that you can achieve but based on on their needs so they will make like five step of this or they make something only in this they will paint it on this color palette it's not necessary to do it in 100 percent of this uh, tip but it's better to have it than you don't have it so you don't need to think what should be the size of the window what should be the uh, facade color so it's it's something that makes your life easier and just covers one of the problem <laughs> except like shelling, except the blackouts, except that there is no electricity like for weeks. So, and this is the other condition, what, what, why it was hard to, to create by ourselves, because we are as an architect team, we, we actually backed in Kyiv, and it was the same. So we are switching off the power generator and then continue working overnight because in the nighttime there is no blackout. So actually you can work it easier than it's daytime. A whole winter was almost without electricity in Kyiv. It was like, daily switch off for two hours or five hours but it is like this as i can said that we used to this so for us this is the normal setup so it's it's fine that we continue acting like this could we talk a little bit about the the essentials the sort of architectural essentials of a ukrainian village and house how would you sort of describe that to to people outside ukraine what things mark out a ukrainian village um there is different types you know the, uh, it's it's a little bit chaotic. As closer to big cities, it uh, appears like two or three stories building. It's more like we call this dacha. Yeah, so people go away from the big cities and trying to set up their land around us. But if you're, thinking, telling, if you're speaking about a small Ukrainian village, like authentic ones, it's a one floor, maybe it's about like 60 or 45 square meter. There is no garage. There is like a super, super low ceiling. It's a white, for example, if we're telling about the Kiev region, it's a wooden decorative frame over the window. It's a super nice cozy veranda there beside. It's 100%. You need to have a veranda or patio. So if, if you don't have a veranda, you can't, you can't be call yourself a, as a village, village livers. Yeah. It's, it's, it's super, something super sweet. So, and this authenticity, we need to, to push a little bit for, for, for next years, you know, even if we will rebuild it with contemporary solution, with contemporary materials, with contemporary building materials. So, but it, the profile of the architectural silhouette should remain like it was. So you can't build like a standard, I don't know, 
super symmetric or I don't know, something like a minimalistic house, because you will ruin the authenticity of Ukrainian, small Ukrainian villages. That's how there was the, you know, what, what was the complicated thing of this project, Ukrainian villas? There was no architecture. So it was only analysis and building online tool based on something that is existing. So there is no creation work. There is no creative work. It was only like recreating the tools that were like a years and hundreds of years. They're using this and we just make them online and we make it like digital architecture. So actually you can create millions of options in few hours if you, if you need it. So it can cover whole whole region. So that's why, for example, Ministry of Infrastructure has interest in our project and they're trying to, to scale this a little bit. So that's, that's why we have kind of conversation with them, how we can be used for the other region. But as I said, we are non-state actors. We are creating the tools and share this for free so you can use it or not using this. But it's, it is there. We, we're doing this just for people who, who we need it. Would you talk a little bit more about some of the challenges you face? I mean, the, it strikes me that there might be quite a few. How easy is, is it, for example, to get the building materials you need to, to where they need to be? Um, finding the people, as you sort of talked about it a little bit before, finding the people who, who can do this. What, what other challenges have you, have you faced in, in, in this project? Fact is that we're trying to combine the, the social incentives and the commercial project because we need to, to be somehow to continue our architectural practice. So I think one third of our architectural team is working on the social project and the two thirds is working on, so on the commercial ones because we, we, uh, can't, we can't deal in other. We don't have so much funds because we are sometimes like once in a month, we call for the open donation for our friends and it covers maybe 10% of our needs. For sure, there was really tough winter because of, as I said, the blackouts and it was a kind of daily shelling and missiles and uh, sirening. So it's just a hard condition of work except that we are doing this the first time. We, we never, we don't have this expertise of making this type of online builder. So it was research and develop, com completely research and develop space because as I said, we, we has no architecture. We, we invite on our team, the guys, entire framework, which covers all the coding and uh, making this uh, happen. We invite a guy who was paramedic, who was building their paramedic model. He, he wasn't in our team. So we just invite a one, one, volunteer group of architects which created such a unique tool and actually our our aim to go to co cover the other region just w w which were destructed or which were invaded and we will we have a plan now on it's good that we can plan it we can prognose because past year we didn't have a plan we have a plan for a week you know on the first months of war you plan at the end of the day maybe on summer you can plan at the end of the week and now on we can plan, I know what we will be doing in, on uh, August or we know what we will be doing in December. So we have a prognosis. On January, we set up a prognosis until the end of the year. And I think this is like a, <laughs> a big deal for us. So it's every time you, so you learning daily. I'm trying to combine my architect's skills versus volunteer skills versus my military volunteering. So I s sign up a contract as a military volunteer. I'm learning how to draw, how to piloted drones because I'm, I'm trying to have my shifts uh, on the front line on the on the back in Kiev work as an architect so oh, people are changed right now people are getting better daily so if you don't want to freeze yourself and you want to act and 
move every time. So you need to learn something new and trying to implement it in a level of, uh, of Ukrainian scale, I can say. What's it, I mean, final question from me is, what's it like going back and forth from the front line to, well, from, from, from what you're doing on the front line to, to your architect studio? Do you, do you have to sort of shift gear mentally or? Yeah, I think it's kind of switch up. I have, for example, a week ago, I was a front line. I just, I, I came back like four days ago to the Kiev and I was flying uh, over the Russian position and searching for the techniques uh, with my, my colleagues, military colleagues. And all of them, they are not military professionals, so we don't have a contract, I mean, officially. We go there by our own wheel, and we just joined the, 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 the group there. We were living in a small village, just super small house with the 20 of people, and they have da- daily shifts on the front line, setting up the mines, or just flying at the drones, or helping the artillery. And then you just come back to Kiev, you switch yourself to the Kiev guy who is working as an architect, drinking coffee. And... Next month, you, you, you head again, next next shift to the next uh, deal. Do you talk to the people you work with on the front line about your projects here? And um, what, what do they think about it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a close community. You know, it's a close community because most of my friends who is, who, who is serving as me as a, a military volunteers, they are not militaries. They are lawyers, they are economists, they are like uh, sportsmen. So they are not like professional. Like you should understand that most of these people on the 24th of February or 23rd of February wasn't a military guy. So they just just take their stuff and, and went there. So as, as for me, I'm trying to be balanced. So I'm trying to balance in between something that I'm still used, I'm still good at, like an architecture of making organization of the people and something that I'm trying to learn new skills, for example, of drawing piloting. It's a new skill for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not really good at that, So, but I'm learning daily to be better, better. So. It's much to do. Absolutely. Is there anything, Slava, that you want to say to our listeners or, or we haven't spoken about that you think is important? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy that you invite me. It's an honor to be there to present Ukraine, to present Ukrainian initiatives uh, on that level. So thank you for having me on, on there. Slava, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.